Welcome to Psyched for Business, helping business leaders understand and apply cutting-edge business psychology principles in the workplace. Hi, and welcome to Psyched for Business. My name is Richard Anderson. Thank you for joining me. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Peter Pease. Peter is a business psychologist and L&D practitioner who has over 20 years experience in running his own business relating to learning and development. In this episode, Peter talks us through the importance of measurement and evaluating L&D. It's a subject I'm very interested in, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks again for listening. Peter Pease, welcome to Psych for Business. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Thanks very much for having me on. Well, I've been trying to get you on probably for the thick end of a year, but I don't think our paths are perfectly aligned to do this. But um, but you and I, when when did we when did we first meet? In fact, I know when it was. It was just before COVID, because we we, we had a meeting. You came into the office, and I think it was February. And I thought you were a clairvoyant because you said something along the lines of, "I think this is going to be a little bit worse." Then uh, this this might be a this might be a big problem for all of us. And uh, weren't you weren't you right about that? Yeah, no, I was. Well, I'd actually I think just been to Ireland. I'd I'd, I'd sort of finished my PhD. I had a sabbatical. The reason I came to see you was because I was looking for a platform to turn my PhD into a psychometric test because I developed a psychometric as part of my PhD and I think I'd just been in Ireland for a week and we were just in that thing where I think Ireland had maybe just locked down and I came back from Ireland thinking what are we doing you know why aren't we why aren't we acting acting now and and yeah maybe that was my anxiety and caution kind of being on display there but yeah I was and and yeah and and um and I think I was right but I but I think a lot of other people yeah I mean I think a lot of other people much cleverer than me were were (laughs) suggesting that that you know we needed to do something and do it it's crazy and the thing that was three years ago now we're sitting here on the 22nd of March as we record this um yeah three years has passed but yeah got to know you you know very well I would say over the last Three years we've been fortunate to do work with you, and um, you've been a you know a, a, a great contact, a great friend to me for various different things. And Peter, it's funny because um, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself in a second, and I know that you've worn many hats throughout your career, so I'm very keen to hear how you introduce yourself. And I know you've been in academia, you've been in business, uh, an entrepreneur, lots of different things. So, who is Peter Pease? Well, that could take up the next hour, <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I still. And in fact, if you think of that as a kind of a more philosophical question, I'm still struggling with what the answer to that <laughs> yeah. might be. But yeah, so me, I originally um, did an undergraduate course in psychology at Durham. I graduated in 1987, mm-hmm. and then set up my own business in learning and development, which is kind of what I did for the next 25 years. I think it's fair to say that in the early to mid-80s, we were pretty much taught that in terms of psychometrics, they didn't have a huge amount to offer the world of business. People like um, Savile and Holdsworth, SHL, were kind of getting going, and there were some sort of green shoots. So I kind of went into business and into the learning and development world, kind of really thinking that 
you know, psychometric psychology, you know, it was, it was a really interesting thing. I was interested yeah. in it, but I didn't really see much sort of, of, of practical value. How, how wrong, how wrong was I as things developed over, over, over the next sort of 20, 25 years or so. My business trajectory, mainly around learning and development, we grew to, at one stage, having 120 employees and 1,200 learners in a single year. We did quite a lot of public sector, UK-based stuff. We worked with big names like you know, Nike and PepsiCo, Rolls-Royce. Um, we did most things you could think of, leadership, management, development, a lot of sales enablement, sales training, a little bit of stuff around compliance. Uh, We also had a recruitment business at one stage and and did a lot of IT stuff. As I said, I could go on for a very long time. It's interesting. Um, So I'll I'll fast track that. Um, 2011, we sold our last learning and development business, which was actually in logistics and and renewables, and that is still going strong, I'm pleased to say. And I decided at that stage that, I wanted to do something else with my life. In, in fairness, I was probably pretty burnt out. We'd had a sort of difficult few years after 2007. Mm-hmm. And I decided to go back into academia. Mm-hmm. So I did a master's in occupational psychology at Northumbria University. How was that? That was good. And we might talk a bit about that because yeah, yeah. I decided to do some research around learning journeys and about how salespeople learn yeah. um, as part of my master's thesis. And I still use some of that. So, so, so maybe we could pick up on that as part of this kind of rambling, rambling conversation. <laughs> and then I, after my master's, I played around with one or two other business ideas, tried doing something retail with my daughter, which kind of didn't really get going. And then in 2015, I landed at Northumbria again and ended up running with some colleagues uh, a business startup program for uh, for, for undergraduates, three-year degree program where they learnt by doing rather than by having lectures, yes. very much sort of co-creating the learning. And alongside that, I did a PhD where I developed a model of psychological capital specifically for early startup entrepreneurs but but the model applies equally well to salespeople to leaders and and, and, yeah. and managers and i guess just picking up on that the thing i was interested in there was how you measure the stuff that changes i think a lot of personality measurement and a lot of the psychometrics we do try to capture what somebody is like at a particular point in time. What yeah. I'm kind of really interested in is how we measure the things that change, the things that we can influence. And there are models around things like psychological hope, optimism, resilience, yeah. that you can change over time, but they're not like they're not fleeting things like emotions, like you know, you might feel happy or sad. Yeah fleetingly so it's these things that are relatively stable but not as stable as your personality so I finished my finished my PhD um, was working part-time at the university and then I thought about trying to do something with my PhD stuff around business startups and business growth Mm. but that didn't really kind of take off 
And what I've ended up doing, I, I left the university last year in 2022, although I'm still acting as a visiting uh, visiting lecturer there, uh, was I, yeah, I, I've been playing around with learning analytics, with measurement and evaluation in learning and development. And we've just finished a big kind of piece of research on that, which I'd be really happy to talk about as well. Well, Peter, that's a fantastic introduction. Um, probably loads to dissect there and a few directions that we can take the conversation. But maybe let's start at the beginning. I'm, I'm really interested in learning, ironically, from you. Why why learning and development? Because I know it's an area that you're hugely passionate about. But, but why, why L&D? I think it probably started when I was at school. And I would sit in classrooms, and, and I think I can remember doing this when I was literally nine or hmm. ten, and I would assess the teachers, <laughs> and I would see some, and that's really, really horrible, isn't it? But I, some of them, and, and bear in mind, you know, I was at a, at a single-sex school um, in, yeah. the, in the in the sort of 1970s and 80s, and we gave our teachers a really hard time. I mean, we gave each other quite a hard time. Yeah. And I'm I'm probably you know slightly ashamed of some of the some some of the antics that we that we used to do. Can I do you want me to tell you one or two stories about that? This might not make it to the podcast, but yeah, that's my so, so if you've got a class of thirty children, yeah, and people start making random noises, it can annoy it can annoy the teacher quite a bit. Yeah. So what we worked out is that if you hum you can't actually tell where the noise is coming from. <laughs> so we would we would have this thing where different people in different parts of the room would start humming, yeah. and the teacher would go around the room getting increasingly cross yeah. about you know not knowing where the where, where the where the noise where was the coming. orchestra's coming from. Yeah. So and, and I, I think I classified teachers into three or four different sorts. There were the ones who were you know really fierce who you didn't mess around with, but who may or may not have been good teachers, but you mm. certainly didn't mess around with them. There were the ones who were a bit hopeless, who we spent an awful lot of time trying to distract. Yeah. And most of them weren't particularly good teachers either because you didn't learn a great deal. And I suppose it's whether you learn anything, which is, which is what matters. And then there were some in the middle who kind of had this sweet spot where they were they, they had a lot of presence, they managed to control the class, um, they made the topic interesting, they were really good at explaining things in an adaptive way so mm. that, you know, if I didn't understand something, they worked out how to explain it to me so that it made sense to me. But they also managed to make it fun. And there were a small number of teachers who were kind of good at doing that. So when I left university and decided to set up my own business, it wasn't originally going to be around um, learning or training and development, as we called it then. Uh, But we kind of drifted into that. But it was much more around corporate corporate learning. So there's a bit of me that I think has kind of always wanted to be a teacher. And certainly mm-hmm. when I was at school, we had this kind of cadet thing, and I ended up being an instructor teaching other people how mm. to how to do how to do stuff in the cadets. And and I've kind of got that. I, I don't know if it's a genetic thing, but I've kind of got that predisposition. And I sometimes have conversations with other psychologists about you know whether you're really 
into kind of selection assessment or whether you're more into assessment for learning and development. And I'm through and through learning and development. That's interesting. That, yeah. and, and if I'm completely honest, and I'm sorry if I offend any of your, your listeners here, I find, I find selection assessment quite dull. Um, it just doesn't do it. It just doesn't do it for me. Well, what we'll have to do is next time, Peter, I'll have to get somebody on that, that that's really passionate about selection assessment, and they can say, "Well, or maybe I can just facilitate this this sort of panel, and you can talk about why." Yeah, why no, I just, why I just think no. I, I, yeah, I mean, I have. I mean, some of the issues are ethical, um, but but it's actually, I think, more that what what gets my juices going is being with a group of people seeing the light switch on, yep. helping them to grow. Our company kind of strap line for that sort of first 25 years was developing human potential. And nice. I kind of feel that we have the, the potential as human beings to help other people to develop. And, yeah. and, and I think there is, you know, whether it's as a parent or a teacher or a trainer, I personally think there's no greater joy um, than, than than being able to do that. Yeah, if you if you can see somebody improve or somebody grow in a particular area, and you've had some sort of involvement with that, I can imagine there's there's very few things more rewarding. Um, and you see it with kids, and I, you know, as you know, I've got two 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 young children, and um, my elder has has come on leaps and bounds recently. I think that's in a huge part due to the teaching that he's received and he's had kind of tailored learning to his specific requirements and needs and I think that's that's massively important so I'm, I'm fully with you on on that um it's funny with learning and development because I've worked as you know for some time not just in Evolve but I've been in this kind of world of HR tech for for a considerable period of time and sold solutions and partnered with organizations in learning and development but it's only been very recently where i've probably realized the importance of that for our staff so we have i think maybe seven staff soon to be hopefully soon to be nine and i think it's really really important to have staff go through learning or or, or training programs um but it's only been recently I've decided to do that. As previously, I've probably seen it as a little bit of a nice to have. Do you do you find that that's quite a common approach or a common sorry attitude with people that L and D's maybe a maybe a nice to have, particularly for smaller businesses? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So, for companies of your size to be investing as much money as you do in learning and development, I think is is unusual. It's really good. I, I think, yeah, as you know, we've done bits and pieces together on this. And I think I've said to you, you know, uh, we, we kind of had a sort of a, a, a team development session. And I've, I've rarely seen a team, even in a company as small as yours, which is, you know, so happy, so mm. unpolitical. So, you know, we, we talk about psychological safety a lot. Yeah. And, you you know, you can't learn if you haven't got psychological safety. So, yeah, I, I think... For the listeners who don't know what psychological safety is, Peter, would you mind just ex- explaining that? Yeah, so I'm not an expert on psychological no, safety. Just and, 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 I, and I know other people, you know, I know somebody's doing a PhD on it. But, yeah, that's, that's a good, good question. So psychological safety... Um, is about having an environment where people 
feel able to speak openly and honestly. Yeah. There's a lot more to it than that. Yeah. But it means that if I don't understand something, I can say I don't understand that without feeling that I'm going to get sort of, you know, dismissed or laughed at. Yeah. It means that if somebody, you know, in the team or in the session um, is is doing something that is upsetting me, I feel like I can call that out and I can say, actually, you know that language you're using? Yeah. You know, I, I find that a bit offensive. Mm. And, and and nobody's going to... We'll, we'll, we'll always have situations of conflict within teams, but it's having that fundamental trust that you can you can say what you need to say without without feeling that there are going to be repercussions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just Google psychological safety. I mean, it, it's 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 becoming a, a really big thing, and there are various tools out there that you can psychometric instruments you can mm. use to kind of measure levels of, of, of psychological safety. Yeah. Um, but coming coming back to the bigger question, learning and development is, I think, really interesting because, in in if you think about it, when organisations get into trouble. So it might be they get taken to an employment tribunal, mm. or it, or it might be that one of the directors, you know, has to leave because he's done something inappropriate or she's done something inappropriate. The solution very often is around training and development. Yeah. So we have, you know, we have a situation where we all have to do loads of compliance training because if something goes wrong, we can then say to the regulatory authorities oh we've done the training we're covered yeah but the but the counter to that is that in an economic downturn learning and development is often one of the functions that gets cut first and i think that that is often because it doesn't manage to justify its existence it doesn't manage to show that the money that is invested in it actually delivers a tangible return and is that because that's more difficult to do? So you, if you're pulling together a business case for learning and development, you're trying to demonstrate return on investment. Is it is it is it a bit more subjective? Is it is it is it? It's really, it's really difficult. It's really difficult to do. Um, and I think that if I go back to the early days of of my business when I was actually sending other people on on training courses, yeah. they would come back. And that, and I and I would say, oh, hey, how was how was it? And they'd say, oh, it was great fun. And I'd say, yeah, mm. but did you actually learn anything? <laughs> and we did, you know, within within our training and development programs, we created tools so that people not only filled in a happy sheet to say whether they'd enjoyed it or yeah. not, but they actually created an action list of things they were going to do differently. We would audit the action list, and as far as possible, we would try and do some sort of cost benefit analysis within within that process but it is really difficult to do yeah i went to the atd conference in the states last year and there were 18 sessions on kind of impact measurement and evaluation and one of the one of the sessions i attended which must have had about 120 people in the opening question from the person running the session was 
How many people here collect level one data? And by level one data, I'll say a bit more about that in a, in a moment. Yeah. That, that means kind of like the happy sheets, the learner yes. reaction, what, what in the States are often referred to as smile sheets, Kirkpatrick's level one. You know, so they asked how many people collect level one data and never get round to analyzing it? And over half the audience put their hands up. Okay, yeah. And I think that it is, it is difficult to do, even, even at that level. But I think one of the problems is that we kind of often end up trying to measure the wrong, the, the, the wrong things. So we put a huge amount of effort into measuring learner, learner reaction, mm. not into trying to measure whether or not people's behavior has changed and whether or not that has had an impact on organizational import. So in order to organizational, yeah. organizational um, performance. So, so, so just so I've understood that. So, so the way that we're measuring the impact of L and D is probably is pr we're probably using the wrong the, the the wrong the wrong way of measuring it. So we need to be measuring well, the behavioural change or the the model the model that's been used since. The 1950s was developed by um, somebody called Donald Kirkpatrick. Yeah. If you talk to learning and development people, and we've done this big piece of research, I think out of 300 and odd people that 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 I've had conversations with over the last year, mm. only one hasn't heard of Kirkpatrick. Yeah. So the Kirkpatrick levels are are, are level one learner reaction. Uh, level two is. Uh, whether or not knowledge has been gained. So people measure that with tests. And I know with some of your sort of tests that you run for clients, you will be measuring, you know, knowledge, knowledge change. And, and, and I know that your the previous company that you worked at, you know, learner assessment was a key part yeah, of it was indeed. On, on, on the platforms. Um, the third thing is behavior change. Okay. And that is you know, whether or not people have actually changed the way they behave on the job. And the fourth thing is impact on the organization or, or results. Now, since that model came out, some, some other levels have been added. So level zero now is often referred to as what people get off their learner management systems. Because mm. bear in mind, back in the, back in the good old days, yep. uh, if you wanted to do training, you were sent on a training course and you then, you know, you, you either implemented what you learned or you didn't yeah, or, yeah. Or, or you didn't understand what you'd been taught or you did and it was much more discreet whereas now an awful lot of training the majority of learning and development is actually delivered through e-learning it is and it's fragmented so you have you know which learners go on which courses how often do they engage with the courses mm. do they complete them do they progress from this level to the next level. So there's all of this kind of level zero data, just about attendance and completion, which is also in the pot. Yeah. And then some people called, a guy called um, uh, Jack Phillips in the, about 30 years ago, developed a model specifically around ROI, return on investment, which he described as level five. And he runs something in the States called the ROI Institute. And they do a lot of really interesting work around just measuring, just measuring ROI. But you asked another question is, is it difficult to measure? The, the other thing is that it's really difficult to actually tease out the effects of learning and development. Okay. 
So if I give you a, a, tell you a story there, so yeah. we um, we did some work for for for, for, for a brewery um, in your kind of almost hometown. Yeah. Um, and you would we, have enjoyed that. We 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 did some we did some sales training, and over a series of months, and the uh, the sales levels went up enormously, and we thought we'd done a fantastic job. Mm. They thought we'd done a fantastic job. The salespeople thought we'd done a fantastic job, and then the marketing people came along and said the average temperature this summer was one point six degrees higher than it was last summer. <laughs> so the reason people have drunk more beer is because it's been warmer. Yeah, in brackets, nothing to do with the learning and development <laughs> program. So, so how you tease out the effects is kind of kind of difficult. Yes. So that's one thing, and and then the other thing is, and and we'll I can now bore you a bit with my uh, master's research, uh, is is actually that that we learn naturally anyway. Okay. So there's a model that I know we've talked about before, which is kind of like the seventy twenty. 10 model which a lot of learning and development people are using now which is where 70 percent of your learning actually just takes place on the job yes 20 percent is kind of through semi-structured social learning and only 10 percent is through going off on on doing courses okay so how do we how how do we you know capture all of that and and it's it's not easy to do yeah no, it's, it's not. And I'm just thinking there when you're talking about the 70%, I wonder, and, and maybe this will take us off on a tangent and maybe we shouldn't go there, but um, how difficult it is now that a lot of people, you know, tremendous amount of people are now working completely remotely. Um, and I would imagine that learning and development and that 70% might have been easier on the job when we're in the office together and we're seeing other departments and people and what they do. And um, I don't know. Anyway, just yeah, no, I think I think that's a really good point. And when we went hybrid or remote during the pandemic, and there were loads of discussions, my thing was just you know I kept on banging on about because it wasn't something that people kind of thought of first and foremost was the kind of social learning that takes place at work. So if you think about it, so so if I go if I go to my my master's research. Because um, it because it is kind of relevant, is I decided that I wanted to look at the effectiveness of sales training. Yes, because my experience was that people would go on sales training courses, and their sales performance would tend to improve, and then it would kind of tail off. And when I looked into it, there's quite a lot of evidence that with sales training, people go on a sales training course, um, and it and it has a half life of about forty five days. Okay. So the you know over, yeah over ninety to one hundred and twenty days, so three to four months, most people's performance will have got almost back to where it was before they went on the training. Okay, and. So is that about reinforcement? Is that about, you know, what is, what, what, what is going on mm. there? So what I decided to do was rather than taking a typical thing of taking sales training and then trying to evaluate the impact, is I did a piece of qualitative research and I interviewed, I think, about 20 top-performing salespeople. And I asked them 
to about their kind of learning journeys that they had taken from being a complete rookie, somebody who'd never been in selling before, to some to to where they were now, which was kind of like uh, you know uh, identified by their employer as being one of their sort of top performing salespeople, and it was really really interesting because only one person. And, and okay, and this wasn't a statistically valid sample here, mm. so you can't really generalize. But only one person mentioned formalized training as having had a profound impact on his training and development. Quite a lot of people mentioned, maybe maybe six or seven mentioned, you know, the onboarding, the induction program that they that they'd been through. Okay. But for most people, the thing, the themes that came out of it were around trial and error so there was one guy who who started off selling trucks okay. and you know on his first day he was sent out into the wilderness to sell trucks didn't know much about trucks didn't know anything about selling mm. went into this large large um large office w- asked who was responsible for buying trucks and uh, was pointed out to a man in man in man at the end of the room. Uh, so he walked up to him and said, "Hello, I'm whatever his name was from wherever he was." Um, and um, and you know, can I can can I can I talk to you about where you buy your trucks from? And uh, the response was um, from the guy sitting behind the desk was, "F off." Yeah. <laughs> um, and this was literally day one, and um, yeah. And uh, he said, "He said, oh, um, I, I was just hoping you might give me five minutes of your time." And the the say so the second response uh, was was um, I told you, f <laughs> off, and that was it. So you know, what did he learn from that? Well, I guess he learned an element of, of resilience, yeah, and he carried on carried on going. But a lot of other people, particularly people, I mean, there were quite a few people working in recruitment businesses who said they just learned so much from sitting in a room with their colleagues and hearing what they did. And, and I think probably the most important thing was having a coach or a mentor um, who was kind of, you know, who, who kind of helped them and and listened in on their calls and and and, and saw them saw saw them saw them through it. Have you done any sales training along the way with any of your? So I'm now I'm sort of turning it back. No, on please, please, please do turn it around. Um, yes, I have done sales training, but I I have to admit I haven't done sales training formally in a long time. It must be ten years since I, I, I've done it, and it was based on kind of models and methodologies, and um, it was very much kind of classroom based training. Yeah, uh, if you like, through a through an external consultant, it was very good. And actually, I did did it with two um, a lady that I've had on this this podcast previously called Jackie. She was she was great, but it was maybe one one or two days of training. I had a little bit of coaching from from a sales manager in a previous role, but not 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 a huge amount. But um, but I mean, I'm I'm not saying I'm the greatest salesperson in the world, and you know, far from it. Um, but I I, I would. I would quite agree to go along with that. I think you make you make mistakes. It's trial and error, and that's definitely been what's. I think that's definitely what's improved improved my communication and, and sales skills generally. But in, t- but in terms of developing any of your team members, have you? Oh, had, sorry, have I thought you... you meant me personally. No, 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 that's fine as well. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, yes, so, so I have because I know the importance of it. So um, my my colleague Will, who's who kind of works in our kind of sales marketing um, role, he was pretty new to it. So one of the first things that I wanted to do was give him training and coaching. So we've worked with an external consultant who's worked very closely with Will, and we also are starting to use coaching technology um, as well um, uh, around that. And I'm I'm about to invest again in potentially both me and him in a, in a sales coach as well, because I know the importance of it. And it doesn't matter how experienced you are or how old you get. I mean, I'll have made you know, countless mistakes and I'll have a load of bad habits that need addressing. So, yes, sorry, that's a long answer to the question. No, 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 it's not, not at all. It's a good, but I, I think, and I wonder if you resonate with this, and we're not, you know, well, sales is a small part of what I've done, sort of sales training, but, but I think it's quite interesting because it's sort of very much in the moment and you kind mm. of get, you know, you either have a result or you don't. But I, the thing I always found most difficult, and I wonder if you do too, is when you go on a joint sales call or sales meeting with somebody mm. is actually being able to sit back and let them mess it up. Yeah. Um, and, and I had occasions where I mean I actually did this professionally with a with a with a with, with a sales team um for, for a client and I would go out on calls with these people mm. and when they got to the point where I thought well they really have lost the sale here I would come in and kind of rescue it yeah um and then when I did the feedback session afterwards uh Rather than, and I'd kind of say, you know, well, how did that go? Rather than then saying, yeah, well, I got, you know, I didn't quite do this. And I was, you know, it was really great. They'd, they'd typically say, well, you know, when you came in and you said whatever, I was just about to say that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so actually learning to sit on your hands and see somebody else yeah. fail effectively, I yeah. think is incredibly difficult, but incredibly important. I, I, I fully agree. And it's funny, as you talk through that, I'm casting my memory back to my very first sales job. And it was for a company that sold uh, software resources uh, in, in education. So it was education resources for a specific subject within education. And uh, we used to go into schools and pitch the, but it was very much a kind of pitching a product it was a product we, we do all of the qualification beforehand and i remember going out with my old sales director a, a guy called stuart hutton who was fantastic he was a you know massive influence on me um and he he sat there as i car crashed this presentation to this group of teachers and it was bloody awful it was um i, I was just I, I, my presentation skills were poor um i couldn't command the room i couldn't answer the questions that were asking me. And he sat there and he was brilliant. He could stand up in front of anybody and he would uh, have them, you know, wrap around his little thing. He was, he was one of them. He was just a great salesperson. And uh, and he just sat there and said nothing. And I, I must have thought, like, he must be mortified here watching me, you know, this car crash. But um, but he did that really, really well. And, um, and I have to say it was good for me. It was good for me that he let me do that because I got to learn from the experience and got his feedback afterwards. We didn't win the deal, I don't think. But, <laughs> but, but there you go. Um, so that is important. We, we, we had, we, I had one somebody who I'm employed to do telesales yeah. um, years and years and years ago. Um, and 
so I'm just going to say that I had a message saying we lost connection. So, so I, I had somebody who worked for me years and years and years ago in, in telesales, and we brought in some technology so that we could record phone calls. All right. So I actually recorded. So this is in the days of cassette tapes, which some of your listeners might not even know what yeah, they are. I remember. So, so we had it, and I listened to her sales calls on the way into work in the car mm. the next day, and I almost crashed the car. I mean, it was <laughs> absolutely appalling. So what I did, and I don't know if this was the right thing or the wrong thing, but I gave her the cassette, and I let her go into a room, and I let her listen to it for half mm. an hour. And then I said to her, um, afterwards, you know, we sat down, and she looked absolutely ashen afterwards, and I said, what, what, what do you, what, you know, what, what are your thoughts? And she said, Peter, I think you should fire me. <laughs> um, and it was really, it was really sad, but it was so powerful. It was so much more powerful than anything I could have said or done. And actually she turned out to be absolutely fantastic and, you know, grew out of the role I had for her in no time at all into a face-to-face selling role and then left us and went on and did, did amazing things afterwards. Um, but going back to this master's research, yeah. and, and, and one of my key thoughts from that is that human beings are, are learning machines. Mm. So what we, you know, what we need to be doing is, is enabling people to learn, not teaching them stuff. So if you look at your children and you look at how they learn how to walk, you know, there wasn't an awful lot that you could have done no. to, to 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 help them do that, other than uh, you know, uh, other than kind of make sure there weren't too many sharp objects around, yeah. um, encouraging them. You know, maybe sort of holding them up a little bit, but they'd have done that anyway. They'd have clambered up and then headed off and yeah. fall, fallen over. Think about how you learn to ride a bike, and different people do it in different ways. Mm. But you, you, you know, you don't do a lecture on the dynamics of no, no, how to ride a bike. There's a lot of trial and error. Certainly, you know, we tend to use balanced bikes now, which we didn't have it have in my day. But then think about driving a car, and you know, there you then you know, formalized training does become more important. You do need to have theory and knowledge, yeah. and so it kind of becomes it kind of becomes more complex. And I think part of the challenge for us is to work out what bits we can do that actually make that actually make a difference. Yeah. And and if I kind of bring this back to psychometrics, I think that where psychometrics can really help with learning and development is kind of in helping people with self-awareness so you know I've got clients and, and I know you've got clients who who use tests psych- psychometric tests mm. as or assessments to help their learners inform their journey yes and I guess the thing that I'm still playing around with developing is how we also then create assessments that people use to measure to measure progress, and and if you look at a lot of the assessments that learning and development people design and use, mm. they're they're not psychometrically valid. No, that they're if you look at the competency models that a lot of people use, you know they they don't have any predictive validity. They're they're just a string of kind of kind of words. So 
one of the things that that I I think is sad is that there are far fewer occupational psychologists or business psychologists in learning and development than there are in or certainly in kind of sort of mainstream L&D. There are lots of them acting, you know, do learning and development roles like coaching. Yeah. But in terms of working with main, for, main sort of workforce development, there are far fewer than that of, in that area than there are in, than there are in selection. And, and, and I think, you know, by bringing our kind of measurement skills to learning and development, there's a huge amount that we can add to the process. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I quite agree. And it's only been, like I said, with and, and you're supporting us with this, but but at Evolve that we've started to, to try and formalise and try and put something in place when it comes to learning and development. Because I think that's something else as well. It's a little bit of a, um, um, I guess, a minefield or it's a bit of a, it's a huge challenge as a small business owner when you know you have to do these things. But if you've never done it before, where do you, where do you start? And I know that you're really passionate about small business and startups and um, and I think kind of applying these techniques to, to small businesses is as important as it is for these, you know, large businesses with L&D functions and divisions. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and uh, yeah, and, 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 I, and I think that, you know, that there's a there's a kind of science that that's that psychologists and, and a, you know, a kind of evidence-based mentality that we can kind of bring that that perhaps you know add something to to, to to what other learning and development professionals can bring can bring as well that's really interesting so I know that you're also doing and I'm keen for for us to briefly discuss this before we we, we finish off the podcast you're doing some um, other research or some ongoing research projects into this area you happy to talk through what you're doing on that front? Yeah, so as I've kind of wound down from the university and looked at measurement and evaluation within learning and development, I've ended up, you know, talking to loads of people. I've been off to conferences and, and expos, and and I kind of feel like nobody's really got all the answers yeah. on that. So what what we did back end of last year is we did a, a piece of research, quantitative research with learning and development leaders in the UK and and North America and Ireland. And we've got uh, 350 people completed completed that. It, it accounts for more than you know, 2 million employees worth of, 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 of learning responsibility and some kind of really interesting thoughts and conclusions from that. And I know we've discussed that we might kind of look at that in, a, in, a, in, a, in another episode. Yeah, absolutely. We're probably slightly running out of time now, but, but there's some really interesting stuff coming coming out of that if you're if you're interested in how you it's not just about measuring the impact of learning and development but it's about how you can collect data from your learning and development that then then helps you make better decisions so that you spend your learning and development pounds and dollars better in the future that sounds really interesting we'll definitely do that we'll we'll get another podcast in if you're happy to join me i've uh i've really enjoyed this one so i will definitely do another one um, and I guess just to just to round things up, Peter, in that case, um, if anybody wants to discuss any of these topics in a little more detail with you, I always um, give our chan- uh, guests the chance to um, say where where people can contact you. I'll put um, I think as part of this podcast, we always put a, a blog 
post up there with a transcript. Um, are you happy for us to put your your link to LinkedIn on there? Yeah, no, that would be fine. And, and my email address as well. Very happy to talk to anybody kind of informally about about kind of learning and development type of type of type of matters. And I and I guess it wouldn't be right if I didn't finish off by you know asking listeners a couple of questions so so mm. i just like you to think back on what you've just listened to and ask yourself what's one thing i've learned from this session <laughs> and then secondly what's one thing i might do differently as a result of listening to this session you know because i'm a teacher and i can't help myself brilliant what a perfect way to end it um so peter peace thanks ever so much really appreciate your time and uh thanks for joining me on psych for business Thank you. Thanks for listening to Psych for Business. For show notes, resources, and more, visit evolveassess.com.